It's Thursday, January 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Big Supreme Court news as we found out Wednesday that Justice Stephen Breyer will be retiring after 27 years, giving President Biden a chance to nominate a new judge. Conservative judges will still control the majority, but it could provide Democrats with some much-needed enthusiasm before the midterms. Sam Baker, senior editor at Axios, joins us for some possible frontrunners for the job. Next, the SAT is going digital soon in an effort to make the test easier to take and be more relevant. The test will go from three hours down to two, in part due to a process called adaptive testing that will tailor the difficulty of questions to what is appropriate for a student's performance level. Nick Anderson, higher education reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for all the changes. Finally, inflation remains at a 40-year high, and many are having to adjust their buying habits more than just the simple switching to generic brands at the grocery store. People are scaling back on other life events and picking up new skills to make do. You can't make cuts on things like medication, so the savings need to come from other areas. Veronica Dagger, personal finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. He was a model jurist. He had huge impact on people's lives in terms of voting rights, women, women's rights and reproductive rights in terms of the environment, and maybe most of all on the ACA, uh, the Affordable Care Act, making sure it stays. Joining us now is Sam Baker, senior editor at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me. Well, on Wednesday, we got some interesting Supreme Court news. We heard that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer will be retiring. He's the oldest serving member right now in that court. He's 83 years old. He's been there for about 27 years, so a long time on the Supreme Court. You know, it's going to be interesting what happens. It's not going to change the makeup of the court. We'll still have a a 6-3 to conservative majority. But it could be coming at a good time politically for Democrats going into the midterm elections. So, Sam, what are we learning with uh, this retirement? Uh, yeah, I think I think you're exactly right. Democrats have been in a, a uh, pretty punishing political environment here where the debate has sort of centered around uh, inflation, COVID, whether schools are open. You know, it's been shaping up to be pretty rough. A Supreme Court fight always changes the dynamic. And especially this one is going to come right as the court is poised to, in the summer, probably significantly scale back, if not outright reverse Roe v. Wade. So Democrats, you know, are kind of feeling like they do feel like the public is with them on the issue of abortion. uh, And it's also one that sort of rallies their base and gives them something to sort of play offense on. What did we see out of Stephen Breyer from his tenure on the court? Uh, Obviously, he was on the moderate to liberal side of things. You know, politically, you made mention in the article you wrote up that you know, he was a, a, a real big user of hypotheticals when uh, he was listening to oral arguments. So what did we see out of his tenure there? You know, he's not a justice who will probably go down in history for anything in particular that he wrote. He, because he was on the liberal side, he was not very often in the majority on big cases. He didn't get to write many of those opinions. Uh, and he wasn't, you know, one of these Scalia-like figures who wrote these big winding dissents either. He kept things pretty narrow, pretty focused uh, on, the, on the facts, not necessarily someone who, who laid out a big sweeping view of the law, but very much a character on the bench. As you said, he's sort of famous for very long winding questions. And, you know, his retirement will also be part of his legacy. 
We do have two front runners already. They want to push this through before the next term starts, which would be October 3rd, right before the elections too. So speed is of the utmost importance here. But we do have two front runners so far. What are we hearing on that front? Ever since President Biden made that promise during the presidential campaign that he would use his first Supreme Court appointment to appoint the first black female justice in the court's history, people have really been focusing in on two judges. One is Katani Brown-Jackson, maybe the better known of the two. Uh, she's a judge right now on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, a very, very powerful appellate court, sometimes called the second most court in the land. Uh, and the other is Leandra Kruger, who had sort of all of all of the makings earlier on, worked in the Justice Department and the Obama administration, was a very accomplished litigator, argued, I think, a dozen cases for the Supreme Court and is now a justice on the California State Supreme Court. With Kintanji Brown-Jackson, there could be some conservative objections to her. I guess she was involved in a couple of rulings that had to deal with former President Trump and some of his legal battles. That's right. Just based on, on her position, uh, first as a, as a trial judge here in D.C., and then her position on the, the D.C. circuit, some of those things have come before her. She wrote a, a very um, strongly worded opinion about some of the Trump administration's claims to executive privilege, and also was part of a panel that uh, recently ruled that Trump had to turn documents over to the, uh, the January 6th commission. However, I will say one of the big marks in her favor, I think, in terms of getting this nomination, is that she was confirmed to the job she has now right. with 53 votes in the Senate about six months ago. It was last summer. So some conservative opposition, yes, but you know, if you're Chuck Schumer trying to figure out if people will support X or Y nominee if they just supported her less than a year ago. And then for Leandra Cougar, she's been known to be a little bit more of a moderate, at least working with uh, conservatives. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that could work in her favor as well. Yeah, you know, it, we, we will learn more about these two candidates and, and others as people sort of dig through more comprehensively their decisions and their records at oral argument and those sorts of things. But there will be sort of a question, I think, do Democrats want someone who they know is a progressive, who's going to sort of fight that fight and carry that torch, even if they're writing a lot of dissents for decades? Uh, or do they want someone who's going to maybe try to play ball with the court's conservative majority, maybe concede kind of a lot, but in doing that, you know, try to work with them and maybe pull things back here or there? That's a, that's a decision that, that the White House is just going to have to make. Yeah. Sam Baker, senior editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Oh, I thought it was very cool. I thought it was very, um, it was just very concise. It was easy to understand. I thought the new digital version was um, very practical in, in our age. And I thought it was very nice to take. Joining us now is Nick Anderson, higher education reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thank you. Let's talk about some uh, big changes going on with the SAT, the college uh, entrance exams, I guess. They've gone through some changes before, but this one, uh, now they're going to be going digital. And the test is going to be getting a lot shorter. This is uh, all in an effort to... Uh, adjust to the changing times, uh, make the test more relevant, the College Board says. So, Nick, what are we seeing in these changes? 
We can all think back to tests that we took uh, way back when, and we had the number two pencil in our hand, and we had to make sure that the pencil was sharp, and we filled in the bubbles, right? That is all now being phased out. Um, By spring of 2024, the college admission test, the SAT, will be given through computers, laptops, and it will get shorter. It will be, instead of three hours, which it now currently is, it will be two hours. The college board, which runs the test, says that you'll still have the same top score of 1,600 on the scale. The scale won't change, but the way the test is given will change, shorter and digital. Now, one of the interesting things is that a lot of colleges, because of the pandemic, but also for other reasons, don't even factor in the SAT or the ACT testing scores anymore when they're going to college admissions. And uh, there's a, a, a group called Fair Test. They're a nonprofit advocate for more limited uh, use of standardized tests. They say that 76% of all four-year colleges and universities won't even mandate them for this coming year. So as it is, you know, it seems like it's being phased out by colleges. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely in a changing environment right now. The word of the day is test optional. Used to be that most of the highly prestigious, highly selective colleges required the SAT or the ACT. That's the rival test. And you had to take it in order to apply to those colleges. Now, more and more, it's becoming the norm that the test is optional. You can take it and send a score if you want to or not if you don't want to. Now, optional is sort of in the eye of the beholder. So there may be some students who feel that it's not really optional and they might feel pressure to send it in, but ultimately the choice will be up to them. That doesn't mean the tests are going away, I've got to add. You have a lot of schools that are test optional where 80, 70% of the students who apply send in their test scores. Now, the College Board has gone through a lot of changes with the SAT since it first launched. Uh, In 2005, uh, there was a whole back and forth, it seemed like, with the added essay writing portion. They implemented it for a number of years, then they took it away. Then last week, I think they took it out uh, completely. I mean, even with the essay part of it, it's been going through changes. That's right. Back when the essay was added, there were people who said, oh, well, the SAT needs to measure some more higher order thinking skills. And the only way to really get a good sense of whether a student is college ready is to look at a writing sample that we make them submit under pressure. And so that was the reason the essay was added way back when. Then it became optional. And then finally, it was discontinued. And so now there is no more essay. Uh, That's been the case for about a year now. This goes to the heart of the debate about these tests. How important are they? How valid are they in predicting college success? I mean, the reason these tests are given is to give colleges a clue that student X is able to prosper in their first year of college. If the tests are doing their job, they are providing another piece of data in that search for whether a student is ready for college. But there's a lot of people who think, well, you know, grades and transcripts, they matter a lot more. So there's a there's a heavy debate about that. Well, one of the interesting things in all of this, right? So the test is going to be going from three hours to two hours. And one of the things that they do with the help of, obviously, of putting this digitally on a computer is that they'll go through a process called adaptive testing. So everybody's testing experience will be a little bit different. And the test will still be divided into two sections, the math and and then reading and writing. 
but it's going to ask you a set of like introductory questions to see, you know, what kind of student, I guess, what kind of test taker you are. And then it's going to tailor the test to that even. So that that's an interesting change, too. Adaptive testing is part of the secret sauce, or maybe not so secret, but it's part of the way that the college board is shortening the test. And think about it this way. There are two modules of questions, two two sets of questions, if you will. The first set of questions, which both count, but the first set of questions will sort of figure out your level. And then the next set of questions will be tailored to your level. And the people who are expert at testing say that it's easier and quicker to get a read on how people measure when you do this kind of adaptive testing. You can drill faster to the precise point that uh, a person's skill set is at. Now, I'm not a psychometrician. I don't know, but that's the theory behind the adaptive testing is to really get fast at the level that somebody is testing at. Nick Anderson, higher education reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So this couple was smart with their money and they said, you know, listen, it would be nice to have this so-called dream wedding, but not for more than double the price that we initially budgeted for. Joining us now is Veronica Dagger, personal finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Veronica. Thanks for having me. Well, we've seen record high inflation right now. And, you know, a lot of people are having to adjust uh, their buying habits. Obviously, some of the big things you do right away, maybe don't buy some of those common things you're always getting, maybe indulgences you'll you'll uh, take away for a little bit, uh, simple changes at the grocery store. You know, you'll buy cheaper brands uh, of things that you're used to buying probably, but the inflation has tended to stick around a little bit longer than usual. And that's not enough anymore for a lot of people. They're having to get pretty creative on how to save money. Uh, some are picking up new skills to supplement that, uh, you know, start baking up uh, some some treats for yourself throughout the week, things like that. Uh, so, Veronica, help us walk through. What are people doing to counter inflation right now? People are making some bigger decisions to blunt the impact of these rising prices. So they're making those small cuts like you're talking about, maybe buying a cheaper option, a generic at a grocery store. All that is going on, absolutely. But some people are making larger changes like scaling back their wedding or learning a new skill to save money. For example, I spoke to a guy who recently bought his first house in Florida. He paid a ton of money for it, even though it was an old house, because you know the housing market is so hot. (laughs) And he realized, you know what, we don't have a ton of money left over. And even if I wanted to pay a contractor to do things, do repairs, or redo my popcorn ceilings, the prices the contractors are charging me for their labor and material these days because of some supply chain issues and the shortages and the like is pretty astronomical. So what I need to do is I need to upskill myself. I need to learn skills on places like YouTube or other online tutorials and learn how to make repairs on my house myself. And this guy was, uh, you know, he had a learning curve, but it actually (laughs) ended up saving him something like $3,000. You mentioned the wedding thing. That was an interesting one too. This uh, couple that was getting married was getting some quotes two years ago it was going to be 20 grand for a hotel that they wanted to get married in 
when they finally got up to it and they were going to check the prices again, it jumped to $54,000. That's a big problem at that point. It's staggering. I mean, that's like two weddings, I would call it. I mean, it's just so much money. And so this couple was smart with their money and they said, you know, listen, it would be nice to have this so-called dream wedding, but not for more than double the price that we initially budgeted for. Um, And so they got a little creative and they said, you know, we're still going to have the wedding, but we have this vacation rental in Sedona that is letting us have a small wedding at that venue, at that home. And we're going to be able to do our entire event for $15,000. And so they're not going to fork out that $54,000 because they just don't see it at this time as something that's worth it. You know, and the guy I spoke to, he said, you know, 2022 is this year of catch-up weddings. And so everywhere you go, like a lot of the venues are, are booked. And if they aren't booked, you're going to have to pay top dollar. And some people just don't want to have anything to do with that. There's a lot of stuff that we're seeing being affected by inflation, prices going up for things that you can't really substitute, uh, medications, different things like that. Uh, You know, for a lot of people, you know, you have to make the cuts everywhere else because those prices are going up and you still need that. That's right. Yeah. Something like your medication, you're, you're pretty married to that. This isn't a medication, but some people are really married to their tobacco habit. And so they're going to pay whatever they're going to be charging for that in certain people's cases. And also things like gas prices. I mean, look, if you're commuting to work each day, um, some people are still doing that and, or need to use the car a lot. You're going to be using up a ton of gas potentially. And so some people are thinking through their travel decisions a little bit more carefully. One woman I spoke to is batching her errands. So she'll plan instead of doing multiple trips, multiple errands, she will do everything in one shot. That way she's saving some time making multiple runs with her car. She'll also just drive less in general. She'll double book family doctor's appointments. All of these things are making her think twice about how often she gets in the car because she's dealing with rising prices in other areas of her life. One of the people that you spoke to, and this is a big change both in price and lifestyle. So this was a pretty cool one that I thought. uh, You spoke to a guy who had a big soda habit. He was uh, deciding he's uh, wasting a lot of money on that. He's He said that he thinks he spends about $700 a year on soft drinks and bottled iced tea. So what he did was I'm going to start making my own iced tea. I think he started losing some weight, you know, saving a ton of money in response to all this, but bettering his lifestyle too. That that was a pretty cool one. That was a cool one. Thank you. Yeah, you know, he, he like you said, he lost a lot of weight. He's saving money. He's actually, this didn't make it into the story, but he's actually taking that differential between the $700 he used to spend and the $35 he thinks he's going to spend this year on things like making carafts of unsweetened iced tea. He's going to take that money and put it in the stock market. So he's going to invest that money. I thought that was really interesting. You know, and in general, he's he's losing weight. He's feeling less anxious, I guess, because of less sugar. He's just feeling good about himself. So this is a habit that he started that has had all these other positives to it that he didn't anticipate going out yeah. there initially. Veronica Dagger, personal finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.